You can open your Bibles with me, John chapter 16. We continue our examination of this section of the Gospel of John that is known as the Farewell Discourse. This began in John 13 at the inauguration of the Lord's Supper. It has taken the disciples outside of the upper room where they gather. They're more than likely still walking along the way to the Garden of Gethsemane where they will arrive in just a mere matter of minutes. There's still some significant passages that we'll go through before we get to the Garden of Gethsemane. But so far we have explored several important themes in this farewell discourse, and we're going to pick up a conversation again about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, the first mention of the Holy Spirit was found in John 14:16, and this came after Jesus told His disciples that He was leaving them. He told them that He would send to them the Helper, the Spirit of Truth, and that He would be with them forever. A little bit later in that chapter, in verse 26, we have another mentioning of the Holy Spirit. This is after telling His disciples that loving Him and obeying Him were inseparably linked, and loving Him meant to be faithful in obedience to His words. He told them that the Helper would come to teach them all things and bring back to the remembrance all that He had said. The Holy Spirit is mentioned for a third time in John 15:26, And this mention comes after Jesus told them that they would bear much fruit in the kingdom, that they are to love one another as He has loved them, and that they would be hated by the world. He told them that the Helper would come to testify about Him to the world as they would also testify about Him in the world. So in our text today, we're going to see the fourth mention of the Holy Spirit, and this comes after Jesus has told them of the kind of persecution that they are going to suffer at the hands of the Jewish brethren, that they would suffer excommunication, they'd be put out of the synagogue, and that meant that they would be excommunicated not only from worship, but from society, from the market, from business, they would lose their friends, probably lose their families, they would be considered traitors, and if that wasn't more difficult, if that wasn't difficult enough, there was also the threat that they would be killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. And so in each of the mentionings of the Holy Spirit in this farewell discourse has come after Jesus' instructions or His dialogue with them about what would be an incredibly difficult period in their life. So we pick up now in this reference, the fourth reference, in John 16, we're going to read verses 5 through 15, and we'll have three major points that we'll make application to. Verse 5 begins, But now I am going to Him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send Him to you. And He, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see Me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. 
All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that He takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So the first major point that we're going to look at here is the prerequisite of His coming. It's a similar outline to what we've already looked at before. And we see this in the beginning part of verse 5. But now I am going to Him who sent me. Jesus has said over and over and over in the discourse that He is leaving. He's already told them numerous times that He's going back to the Father. This is the central issue and the farewell discourse that Jesus is leaving him, leaving them, they are going to be without Him. Their world is collapsing around them. They followed Him every day for some three and a half years. He was their life. He was their everything. And He is about to go. And they don't understand why He has to go. And they don't understand why they can't go with Him. But Jesus is going to go home. He is going to go to His rightful place of glory to where He has been from eternity past until His miraculous incarnation some 33 years prior. You know, you have probably been in a lot of interesting places in your life. You've probably been in some incredibly exciting places in your life. But there's just something about going home. Isn't that right? You've heard the term homesickness. There's such a longing for home, that place where we know we belong, that place that is ours. And this, in a sense, humanly speaking, is a part of Jesus' own experience. He is equal to God the Father, the Trinity, the Godhead, that has existed from the beginning of time. He has been there for eternity, and He took a recess to become a man, flesh and blood, to live amongst us, to teach, to live, and to die. He's at the end of His appointed days on the earth, and He is ready to go home. But the disciples are very self-concerned. Jesus says, in the latter part of verse 5, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Now, upon reading this verse, most especially if you've reread John 14, 15 to where we are today, you would recognize, and you might say to yourself, now wait a minute, I'm pretty sure that somebody asked him where he was going. Do you remember that? Well, the verse has caused many commentators to really struggle, and as a result, they have rearranged the Gospel of John so that this comes before the questions were ever asked of Jesus. It's not necessary to do that. What is necessary is to understand exactly what Jesus means when He says, but none of you have asked Me where I'm going. Now, the disciples aren't interested in where Jesus is going. They are consumed with the reality that He is leaving them and they are thinking only of themselves. Let's look at John 13. John 13, 36. Peter said to Him, Lord, where are You going? And Jesus answered, Where I go, You cannot follow Me now, but You will follow later. Now, Peter's question isn't about the location to where Jesus is going. His question is a protest that Jesus has said He is leaving them and they cannot go. 
is kind of like a young boy who's been looking forward all week to a Saturday morning of fishing with his father, and the father gets called into work and says, I'm sorry, son, but we just, we just can't go fishing today. I've got to go to work with the little boy. He's going to look at his dad and say, where are you going? Well, he said he's going to work, but that's not really the issue, is it? It is a protest that we aren't going to get to do what it is I wanted to do because you have to go someplace else. Not concerned about the location of where Jesus is going, only fixated on the reality that He is going away and they cannot follow Him. Similarly, in John 14.5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? This prompted Jesus to say, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, Thomas's question reflects a lack of understanding in the messianic mission that Jesus was on. We've talked about this repeatedly. The disciples were under the conviction that Jesus was going to set up His earthly kingdom. He was going to assume the rule as king of Israel, that they were going to overthrow the Romans politically and militarily, and they were going to revisit the glory days of the nation of Israel with Jesus as their literal physical king, sitting on a literal physical throne. But this is not the mission that Jesus is on. They couldn't possibly understand all at once that Jesus was the conquering king, the suffering servant, and the resurrected Lord. Jesus' messianic mission was going to take Him to the cross, and there was nothing, there was no one that could prevent that from taking place. And so when Peter asks the question, and Thomas asks the question, where are you going? It isn't location. It's the reality that you're leaving. What are we going to do? What is going to happen to us? So rather than focusing on what was happening to Jesus... They were only focused on themselves. Jesus was going home. It was a joyful event for Jesus. It was going to result in His glorification. It was going to result in His exaltation. It was going to complete the eternal plan of redemption. He would be reunited with the Father and the disciples were consumed with what is going to happen to me. So the statement by Jesus doesn't require us to rearrange John, but to understand that he is confronting the disciples with their self-absorption. And this is exactly what Jesus brings out in this dialogue with them. They are sorrowful. He has told them, I'm going back to the Father. I'm going to send you the Helper, another one exactly like me. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you love me, you love the Father. If I love you, the Father loves you. He's gone on and on and on and told him these things. Verse 6, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Jesus' intention is verified in this verse that they are only thinking about themselves. Not concerned with where He's going and, and what's going to happen where He goes, but that they are going to be without Him. It also demonstrates that they are thinking naturally. They are not thinking spiritually. His purpose in this farewell discourse is to prepare them for His departure and, and it is to prepare them for their apostolic ministry. 
if Jesus was just going to arrive on the scene and mold and shape these men and the followers and then leave them, and they were going to go back to their old way of living, what was the point? He wants to prepare them for their apostolic ministry, which they cannot undertake until He goes away. So His departure is actually beneficial to the disciples. Have you ever heard your father or your mother or some authority figure say that to you? This is for your own good. You ever heard that? You hear that with a lot of doubt in your mind, don't you? Well, I'm not so sure about this. I can't see anything good coming from this. And you're just saying that to make me feel better. And I would imagine that's a little bit of what the disciples are going through. Jesus is telling them that it is beneficial for you for me to go away. Absolutely unthinkable. Verse 7. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. So the sorrow that they are experiencing reflects the self-interest and it also reflects an incomplete understanding of Jesus' mission. Much to their surprise and probably with great disagreement, He tells them that it is better for you if I leave than it is for me to stay. So the stated reason of advantage that Jesus gives to them is that the Helper is going to come. We were introduced to the Helper. The Helper is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, the third person of the Trinity. All that they need to love and obey Jesus as He has instructed them, the Helper will provide. All that they need in order to love one another as He loves them, the Helper will provide. All that they need to bear fruit in God's kingdom, the Helper is going to provide. All that they're going to need to withstand the persecution they're going to face, the Helper will provide. All that they're ever going to need in their lives and in their apostolic ministry, God provides through the Helper. The Helper isn't limited by time and space. So just like God, and unlike the physical person of Jesus Christ, the Helper will be everywhere all the time. If Jesus doesn't go away, then the Helper does not come. Now, there's at least two reasons why it's, it's, it's important to understand that the Holy Spirit won't come apart from Jesus' departure. The first one is that the Helper is going to come to testify to the world about Jesus, just as Jesus said in John 15, 26. The Holy Spirit is going to appear in the world. He's going to convict the world of the person of Christ and of the work of Christ. Now, the Holy Spirit is doing that. We can't see it. We may not be aware that it's taking place. And we actually talked a little bit about this. When you feel prompted by the Holy Spirit to visit someone or to call someone or to share the Gospel with someone, they respond to you and say, I'm so glad you came. I've had questions about this very thing. And so these providential meetings, these providential gatherings that are at the instruction, at the bequest of the Helper, is possible because He's everywhere 
all the time, unlike the physical presence of Jesus. So this purpose isn't necessary as long as Jesus is alive in His flesh and blood. It isn't necessary for the Holy Spirit to testify about Christ because Jesus would still be alive and He's testifying about Himself and about the Father in the region of Palestine, which is where He is. Secondly, it's important that Jesus go away so the Holy Spirit can come. The Father gave the Helper as proof of the faithfulness of Christ in completing the work of salvation in His death and in His resurrection. Now, if Jesus were to die on the cross and to be the propitiation for our sin and the Holy Spirit didn't come, then there would be a lot of unanswered questions, wouldn't there? So, as a reminder of this reality on the day of Pentecost, when God poured forth the Holy Spirit on all of the believing community and the massive crowds that were in Jerusalem for the required feast, they saw these individuals from their, excuse me, they saw these Jewish individuals speaking the gospel message in their own native language, even though they were never taught or had never learned that particular language. It's expressed in Acts 2, verse 33, when Peter says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, the Father, has poured forth this which you both see and here. And so the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit through the apostles and through God's children throughout all of time bear evidence of the faithfulness of Christ and completing the task of salvation through his death and resurrection. It's in a sense that the Holy Spirit is the icing on the cake. It's what seals the deal. It's what helps us know that we know that we know that Jesus is real, that He died for my salvation, and that I belong to Him. It is the ongoing work and testimony of the Holy Spirit that confirms such a thing in our lives. Now, the ministry of Jesus, which was powerful and life-changing, didn't go beyond the borders of Palestine. Very difficult to find an exact size of Palestine in Jesus' day. But let's just be general with this. Let's say that Jesus never went outside the state of Pennsylvania, but boy in Pennsylvania, He had an incredible ministry. Well, after Jesus left and the Holy Spirit was poured out among the believing community, the Gospel message spread to the entire world. Palestine was much smaller than the state of Pennsylvania. But the Gospel mission has reached every nook and cranny of our world because the Father has sent the Holy Spirit. Now, the unstated reason of advantage in His departure, it's not in our text, but it's, it's worth noting, the unstated reason of advantage in His departure is that the eternal plan of redemption and the atonement would be satisfied on their behalf and on our behalf as well. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection has provided victory over sin and death for tens of millions of believers 
Now, do you think that the disciples' perspective, perspective would have changed a little bit if Jesus told them, it's better for me to go away because when I go, the Holy Spirit's going to come and He's going to assist you in living your life. And oh, by the way, when you see me on the cross in just a few, in a few hours, you're going to know that your salvation has been complete. You might wonder about it, but on Sunday I'm going to rise. And I'm going to show up over a period of 40 days to confirm this is true. And then you will know that you know. He could have told them, but they still wouldn't have heard it. Why? Because they were consumed with the idea that Jesus was going away and that they weren't going to get to go. So, this would be the primary focus of the work of the Holy Spirit. It is to assist the believing community in carrying out the gospel message. Now, secondly, and this is what we focus on here, number two, it is the purpose of His coming. What will the Helper do when He comes? Now, we've talked generally about assisting us in loving and obeying and about bearing fruit and about withstanding persecution, but our text gives us a couple of other things that are part of the specific work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, And He, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now this speaks to the ministry that the Holy Spirit will have to the non-believing world. It's a very different ministry to the non-believing world than it is to those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you've got to understand this, that we don't come to faith in Jesus Christ apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. But after we've come to faith by the work of the Holy Spirit, then the work of the Holy Spirit takes on a very different direction in our lives. So what Jesus says here specifically is that the ministry to the non-believing world is going to be a ministry of conviction. Now, that sounds like it's a negative thing, but in reality, it isn't. Now, that word conviction for us carries with it a very heavy judicial tone, which it should, and the assumption is that when you are convicted, you are going to be found guilty, you will then be sentenced, and then you're going to be punished. So, in the natural world, being found guilty means that the sentencing is going to result in some punishment that is commensurate with the crime that you have committed. Spiritually speaking, this conviction is the reality of our sinfulness, of our need for salvation, and it is to be spared from the spiritual sentence of eternal separation from the Father. No one can be saved apart from the Spirit's convicting and the regenerating work. The Bible teaches that all people by nature rebel against God and are hostile to Jesus Christ. And so the initial work of the Holy Spirit and this unbelieving community is the ministry of conviction based upon our sinful condition and our need. We read in Ephesians chapter 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. This describes for us in great simplicity our spiritual standing before the Lord. We are dead and we are hostile because we are by nature children of wrath. Jesus told them that they would be hated by the world because they hated Him first. The world stands opposed to Christ. The world loves sin. It hates righteousness. 
The world is trapped in this domain of darkness and it despises the kingdom of light that is representative in the life and the ministry and in the teaching of Jesus Christ. And so the Helper wants to bring lost sinners to a saving knowledge of Christ. So this ministry of conviction sounds like it's a negative thing, but it's not. It's a good thing because it signifies that this God of grace seeks to bring the hopeless and the helpless into relationship with Him. The Holy Spirit wants to break the power of sin that enslaves us and the love of sin that keeps the lost in rebellion to God. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. Now, there's three elements of this ministry of conviction. Number one, it is conviction of sin. Verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. Now, sin here is not referring to specific acts of sin, nor does it, re- nor does it speak to the comprehensive list of sin. It's the sin of rejecting Christ as Savior. When the Holy Spirit convicts the non-believing world of their sin, of their rejection of Jesus Christ, they have, an, they have a choice in that, right? They either repent or they reject. So the sin here is rejecting Christ as Savior, and this is the unpardonable sin. Within some religious groups, within some denominations, there are unpardonable sins, but they're really man-made lists. The only unpardonable sin is the sin of rejecting Christ as Savior. This is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, that being Jesus, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So the work of the Holy Spirit is gracious as He seeks to convict the world of its need and and drives us to turn to Christ as our only hope, as a remedy for our sinful condition. Secondly, there is a conviction of righteousness. Verse 10. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. So just as the conviction of sin did not refer to specific acts of sin, nor to a comprehensive list here, righteousness is not referring to specific acts of goodness or to godly behavior. Instead, it refers to the righteous nature of Christ. That got omitted from your list. It's in your outline, but not on my slides. So this refers to the righteous nature of Christ. This is the flip side to the guilty condition of mankind. On the one side, you have a sinful man who is dead in a sin, who is the object of God's wrath, 
who is without help and without hope. And on the other side of that coin is the righteous Son of God who has come into the world to pay the penalty for mankind's sin. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit to not only convict us of our sin, but to show to us the righteous nature of Christ. Now, would it surprise you to hear that research still verifies that the majority of people today believe that they are basically good, and because of this, they believe that God is generally pleased with them, and therefore they can hope for some kind of heaven when they die. If you were to ask an unbeliever, if you were to die today and stand before God, and He were to ask you, why should I let you in heaven? What would you say? The vast majority of people are going to say something along these lines. Well, I feel like I'm a pretty good person. I'm not perfect and I've got problems and I do things I shouldn't do, but basically, I'm a pretty good person. And do you think that that should entitle you into going to heaven? Well, I hope so. You know, maybe not the highest of heavens, but it ought to get me in the door, right? And this is the basic idea that a lot of people have. A lot of people believe that they are basically good, that God is generally pleased, and that's going to get them into some kind of heaven when they die. Well, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of its need for righteousness. When you were made aware of your absolute sinful state, it should have become pretty obvious to us that we were in need of some kind of righteousness to balance out or to erase that sinful condition that we have. Well, the only way this righteous need can be satisfied is through the person of Jesus Christ. He and He alone satisfies the righteous requirement of God. Now, there's one exception to this. You don't need the righteous requirement of Jesus Christ if you are 100% perfect. All the time. Without fail. Under any circumstance. Well, as Mike and Lindsay are going to find out, that time's coming really, really fast when perfection goes away. They look at that little baby and it's just, it's just perfect, right? <laughs> Jesus alone satisfies the righteous requirement of God. This is why He is the way and He is the truth and He is the life and no one gets to the Father except through Him. Man's only hope of getting to the Father is found in Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit convicts the world of its rejection of Christ, of the righteousness of Christ and our need for it. And this is demonstrated in the reality that Jesus goes to the Father. You just don't go to the Father unless... Jesus has made the way. Well, who made the way for Jesus? Well, He is the way. No one had to make the way. No one created it. No one stamped His hand. He is the way. And it is through our union with Christ that we have access to the Father. And just as Jesus began in this farewell discourse, where I am going, you cannot come now, but you will come later. 
we will go to the Father. Now, the third ministry of conviction that the Holy Spirit has is the conviction of judgment. Verse 11. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So when man is convicted of his rejection of Christ and of Christ's righteous standard that He is the only way to the Father, the inevitable conclusion is pretty obvious, and that is judgment. When we recognize that we are outside of a relationship with Christ, and there is no way to the Father except through Christ, it ought to elicit a great big, uh-oh, i got a problem. Yeah, you do. It's called judgment. Judgment results in punishment. He convicts the world of that judgment. And punishment awaits those who reject Him. Part of what draws man to Christ is the escape from this punishment. I remember as a 13-year-old boy, I had uh, some friends, family friends, who were going to a tent revival. I don't know if you've ever been to a tent revival, but it was of a Pentecostal charismatic persuasion. And I knew nothing about that. But I'll tell you what, the guy speaking, I don't know his name, I don't remember what he said, but the threat of hell was very, very real. And I went forward and cried because I didn't want to go to hell. But I left that place without any God consciousness or God awareness. I don't believe that I was saved at that moment. But there are a lot of people who are confronted with the reality of this punishment. And it's all they need. We need to recognize that if we are outside of a relationship with Christ, punishment awaits for us. You know, it's very rare for someone to want to take their punishment. Very rare. Typically, there's a plea for mercy and for grace. Have you ever heard of someone who threw themselves at the mercy of the court? You heard that phrase, right? Well, judge, I know I'm guilty. Judge, I know you're going to sentence me. But judge, I'm just asking you to be merciful with me. I'm throwing myself at the mercy of the court. Well, more times than not, you're not going to find any mercy. But you and I who have an insurmountable mountain of sin testifying against us, against the holy, righteous God of this universe will find an abundance of mercy. So this is the ministry of conviction, helping the unbelieving world see its need for Christ and then coming to Him for mercy. Now Jesus says in this verse that the ruler of this world has been judged. Now we understand who the ruler of this world is, right? That is Satan. And what this means is this, is that those who live under His rule in this world will receive the same guilty sentence and be subject to the same punishment as the one that rules over them. You know, there's been many, many innocent people who have suffered unspeakable punishment at the hands of someone who is guilty that they had nothing to do with. 
There are so many in our world who don't understand that they're in a spiritual battle. They don't understand that Satan is the ruler of this world. They don't understand their need for Jesus Christ. They don't understand the severity of their punishment. And so the ministry of the Spirit is to convict them as he testifies about Christ and as the apostles and as all disciples throughout all time testify about Jesus Christ. We speak this message of hope to a lost and a hopeless world. So the Spirit carries out the ministry of conviction designed to bring the loss of salvation and there are only two options, repentance leading to salvation or rejection leading to judgment. Now the third point in our outline is their provision in His coming. Verse 12, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Now that's an understatement, isn't it? Jesus says, I've got a lot more to say. In fact, we could go on for days and days and days. But you can't tolerate the idea that I'm about to go away. You can't come right now. You can't handle anything else I'm going to say to you right now. So they need further preparation for their apostolic ministry. It doesn't begin at the inauguration of the Lord's Supper and end when Jesus is arrested and taken away from them. The preparation for their apostolic ministry is going to continue where and how? Through the work of the Helper that Jesus is going to send. There is a very personal provision for these disciples when the Helper comes. The first one is the revelation of truth. Verse 13, But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth, For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. And so this is where there's a bit of a shift from the work of the Holy Spirit in the non-believing world and the work of the Holy Spirit and the immediacy of his role in the lives of these apostles. So the work of the Holy Spirit for the the disciples here is the future revelation of truth. The many things that Jesus refers to that He would like to tell them now but can't, the Spirit is going to tell them later. This is exactly what Jesus says when He says the Spirit of truth will come and will disclose all things to you. This is a pre-authentication of the divinely inspired writings of the New Testament. You know, there's a big thing where you can pre-order a book. You can can advance order a book, and when it's available, it'll come to you, right? Well, this is kind of like a pre-authentication of how the Holy Spirit is going to inspire them to speak the eternal, inerrant words of God. Since the, since the Helper is the Spirit of truth, He cannot inspire that which is untrue. This means the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is inerrant. We would understand, as any Jew of this day would, that it is through the inspiration of the Spirit that the Old Testament was written. The same thing is true of the New Testament, except these are some of the guys who were going to pen the words that would be God's eternal and errant word. Paul, not yet in the body of believers, will write 13 of the 27 books in our New Testament. So if you believe the Bible is inspired by God, 
then it stands to reason that we would also believe that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God, meaning that it is without error, because the Spirit cannot speak that which is untrue. R.C. Sproul recounts this common occurrence that he had when he would reach out the theologians and the scholars, and here's what he says. He says, on numerous occasions, I have queried several biblical and theological scholars in the following manner, and this is on the subject of biblical inerrancy, and he says this, do you maintain the inerrancy of Scripture? And the theologians and scholars say no. Do you believe the Bible to be inspired by God? Yes. Do you think God inspires error? No. Is all of the Bible inspired by God? Yes. Is the Bible errant? No. Is the Bible inerrant? No. He says at this point, I usually acquire an exeteran headache. This is the duplicity that exists within our Christian world on the subject of inerrancy. If you're going to choose to believe that the Bible is with error, what parts are you going to remove? That's the question. So, not only is what they write going to be inspired and inerrant, but what they will say and teach and preach and instruct others through their apostolic ministry will also be considered and Aaron, we don't have a record of that. We don't have everything that each of these guys ever said in any setting. But we know because they are inspired by the Spirit of truth who can only speak that which is true. Everything that they said was inspired by God and therefore truthful. Just as Jesus spoke only what the Father told Him, so the Spirit will only speak what He hears. They will have the distinct pleasure and honor of completing the revelation of God's world to mankind. But not only will the Holy Spirit reveal truth to them, He will also focus on a second aspect in their, in their apostolic ministry, and that is the glorification of Christ. Everything that the Spirit does in the lives of believers is designed to bring glory to Christ. Now, you and I are not going to be given divine inspiration as the disciples and apostles were, but we will be given understanding of the divine revelation so that we can apply it to our lives in a meaningful way. But, the Spirit will empower us to live lives that will bring about the glorification of Christ. Verses 14 and 15. He, the Helper, will glorify Me, for He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that He takes of mine and will disclose it to you. You see, the, you see the, the passing here. The Father gives it to the Son and the Son gives it to the Spirit and the Spirit gives it to the apostles and to the disciples throughout all of time. The Spirit doesn't speak on His own initiative just like Jesus didn't speak on His own initiative. Jesus only said what He heard the Father say. The Spirit is only going to say what He hears the Son say. And so He will glorify the Son by explaining the completed work of Christ. He will glorify the Son by showing Him to be God's one and only, the Lord and Savior, 
the atoning sacrifice for the sin of mankind. There is complete unity within the Godhead. As the Father disclosed himself to the Son, the Son disclosed himself to the Spirit, and they are all 100% truth all the time. Imagine if the New Testament ended with the Gospel accounts. What if you were given a New Testament and you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and that was the end? You'd have a lot of unanswered questions, wouldn't you? What happened to the disciples? What did that mean? How does that fit with the Old Testament? What does this mean for me in eternity? How can I know that I know that Jesus is my Savior? How can I know that I'm saved by grace through faith? How how can I know these things? So many questions would be unanswered apart from the work of the Holy Spirit given to these individuals to complete God's eternal revelation. Well, the work of the Holy Spirit continues today. And a big part of his work is to lead men and women and boys and girls into a saving knowledge of Christ. The other part of his work is to reveal to those who have been saved the truth of of this divinely inspired word so that we can be conformed to the image of the one and only Son who died in our place. As I went back and prepared for this and reviewed this, I, I found it to be very striking that at the conclusion of each very challenging dialogue piece in this discourse, Jesus talked about the role of the Holy Spirit. I don't think that's a coincidence for you and I. When we're facing difficulty, when we're facing uncertainty, it is the Holy Spirit that comes and encourages and comforts and counsels us. When we want to bear fruit in the kingdom, it's the Holy Spirit that comes and empowers us to do so. When we desire to love and obey as Jesus commanded us, it's the Holy Spirit that does that. As we desire to grow in our love for one another, it's the Holy Spirit that enables us to do that. There's a recurring theme, a recurring pattern of how they are to depend upon and by virtue, lean upon the Holy Spirit. He will be our everything. Would you pray with me, please? Father, how thankful we are of the completed work of salvation. How thankful we are for the sending of the Holy Spirit to come and indwell us, to seal us in our relationship with you to empower us to live the kind of life that you have instructed us to live, to be a people that will testify in this lost world and bring glory to the name above every name. Father, we're so aware of how we fail to do that, of how incomplete our journey is. And I pray, Father, that we would not lose hope, that we would not become so self-absorbed and self-focused that we lose sight of who you are and what it is you desire for us to do for you, but that we would learn to lean upon, depend upon the Holy Spirit, that we would yield to him, 
and allow Him to mold us and shape us into who You want us to be. May You find within us hearts to cooperate with You molding us into the image of Your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.